Uh, we're in a series called Church in the Wild. What we're looking at is a section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 to Acts chapter 12, where the church moves after three years of gathering in Jerusalem uh, into Judea and Samaria and beginning into the outer parts of the known world at that time. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus before ascending to the Father said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, but wait on the Holy Spirit. And so we, if we are Christian and Christian in our ministry efforts, are to be a Holy Spirit-empowered and led people if it's going to glorify the Savior that we profess to be trying to glorify in the ministry effort. Otherwise, you end up with man-made versions of religion that can do good work but cannot transform, that can speak to a God but it cannot actually allow that God to be seen through what they do. And we don't merely want to be a people that talk about the work of God, but we want to be a people that have experienced and testify to what God has done and is doing in and through our lives. Are you tracking with me? So after three years, uh, they had stayed in the meeting together in Jerusalem and gone nowhere. So persecution breaks out when a guy named Stephen stands up and preaches. And instead of being met with prison time and threats or repentance and mass conversion, instead he is met with an untimely death as they picked up rocks, killed him, and then a guy named Saul began to ravage and persecute the church. And the entire church in Jerusalem then is scattered into the outlying areas. Uh, areas. Acts 8. In 9 and 10, which is what we're looking at today, begin to record some of the stories of the scattering believers who are preaching the gospel everywhere they go. Here's a big lesson to be reminded of in this section of scripture. No matter what happens to you, it is always in season to be a people that are proclaiming the good news and the testimony of God. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're scattered or if you're on native turf. I don't know if you're comfortable or if you're in unfamiliar territory. What we learn from the early church is that no matter where you're at or what season of life you are in, we are to be a proclaiming message people of the gospel wherever we go. So whether it's good or bad, proclaim the gospel. And that's what we see from the early church. Church. Now, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament is a guy named Peter or Simon Peter. The reason for that is he often overpromises and underdelivers. And I, as a husband and as a father and as a Christ follower and as just a human being in general, have spent the majority of my life meaning to do more than I've actually done. Anybody relate to that? You intended to do more, but you've actually delivered a lot less than what you intended on doing. Just last night, my wife dropped a ton of laundry beside me on the bed. There was an unspoken message about what that was supposed to mean. <laughs> I've learned this in 15, 16 years of marriage, but I've yet to uh, let it adhere or hit me at the right moment. She came in about an hour later. I was uh, watching this show about quarterbacks in the NFL. It was great. It was enjoyable, and all of a sudden, the Spirit hit me with the conviction that my wife had an expectation that I had not met. Uh, I knew I wanted to, I meant to fold those towels two episodes prior, but, but they just, it's a countdown. It's like five, four, three, and here's the next one, so I didn't have time to even use the restroom or to get a snack, so I mean, I didn't fold the laundry. I meant to do more, but I delivered on a lot less. Well, Peter, he said that he would follow Jesus to the death, but... Then, as Jesus was on his way to death, what's he doing? He's denying Jesus over a burning barrel and cussing out a girl who says, You've been with Jesus. He consistently is over-promising and under-delivering. He chops a guy's ear off, and has to, Jesus has to clean the mess up of what he's doing. Peter's not really helpful in ministry as far as keeping it clean. He makes a mess of things. And maybe that's why I like him so much. It's because I tend to find messes always around me, which may suggest that I might be a part of the mess. You're tracking with me. 
felt good to get that off my chest. My point is, at the end of Acts chapter 9, after Saul is converted and becomes, moves from being an adversary to an advocate of the gospel, we're recorded two stories of God moving powerfully through Peter. Uh, there's first a lame man who's not been able to walk for eight years, and God powerfully heals him through Peter, and he begins to walk. Peter's arrived. He's obviously matured. He's obviously sanctified. He's obviously reached sainthood levels. Then, at the end of Acts 9, there's another story about a woman named Dorcas, which is the worst name you could ever be given. But nonetheless, Dorcas, who uh, was a faithful servant of the church, ethnically from a Jewish background, who loved the Lord and had died in Joppa, about 10 miles away. And so Peter goes up from where he was after seeing the lame man walk, and he goes in and prays for Dorcas, and she stands up and begins to walk and live Again, obviously, Peter has arrived. And, and here's the problem. Chapter 10 then comes to remind us that Peter has not arrived. Chapter 10 comes to remind us that Peter's got a long way to go. Chapter 10 comes to remind us that Peter's still got prejudice that's keeping him from ministry opportunities around him because he's overlooking the people that he doesn't want to see. You see, it's been six years by chapter 10 since Pentecost. Six years. And in six years of ministry... The apostles in the early church have ministered primarily to two groups of people. People who were ethnically Jewish in the cities that they went to or were Gentile converts to Judaism in the cities that they went to. There's not a single Gentile conversion recorded in six years of someone who's coming from a Gentile background who's not sort of Jewish already. Six years. Their call, according to Matthew chapter 28, was to go to where? The nations. Now, what they did is they took it as a call to go to the nations and find the people that were like them, that were easy to connect with them. And they would go and find people that they were comfortable with, even though they were on wild places that were less Jewish than Jerusalem, and they would identify those Jewish people, preach to them, they would get saved, they would celebrate, pat themselves on the back, but God's heart was for the nations, and what we see in chapter 10 is that Peter is willing to go as long as when he goes to the nation, he can find people that are like him to preach the gospel too. But he doesn't want to go into the wild of that city and preach to the people that are doing the things and worshiping gods that aren't like him because that would perhaps bring the ire of other Jews that were around him. And, and they might begin to whisper about him and talk about him and talk about how he's over the edge and he's crossed the line because he's hanging out with those people. Not that Jesus was also accused during his actual ministry on earth with actually being around those kinds of people because they accused Jesus of being what? A drunkard for hanging out with people who were drinking too much. So, so you got to understand, and this is not me advocating on the front end for you to go out and, and like carelessly live an unholy life and blah, but it's for evangelism. You're not drinking on the weekends for evangelism, so stop that. that that's not why you're drinking beer. Like, let's, be, let's just be honest. You, you don't have good coping mechanisms that have been built in your life. It's not because you're Christian. It's because you don't know how to come to Christ with your worry and anxiety. You go to Bud or whatever it is you drink now because of whatever political agenda and ideology you follow. <laughs> Acts 10 opens up, and it brings us to a city that no Jew ever thought about actually going to. Uh, if Samaria was bad, 
and out there. This was the bad of the bad. This was the red light district of Amsterdam. This, this, this was like Vegas unleashed. Like, like this, you don't go there. And that's where God was at work. Open your Bibles, Acts chapter 10. I want to talk to you about what it looks like to really minister in the wild. This is where this series title came from, actually, in this chapter, Acts chapter 10. It says this, In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. There's a difference between fearing God and knowing God, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. A lot of people have a reverential fear of God, like, oh, that's a holy space, or that's a, that's a holy thing. I don't, I don't want to get around that. I'm not holy. I don't want to be around that. I'm not like those people. I don't want to go there. But it doesn't mean they actually have a relationship with God, which is the actual difference. Cornelius revered and understood holy God, unholy people, uh, but he didn't have relationship or connectivity with God. I, I'll try not to preach it as I read it. I'll come back to it and then preach it so you get to read it twice. So maybe you'll remember three words of the text. Cornelius, uh, as he was praying in the third, one afternoon about three o'clock, verse three, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. Uh, what is it, sir? He asked the angel, and the angel replied, your, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of, the, the, two of, the, two of his household servants and a, and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened, and he sent them to Joppa to get Peter. Okay, really quick, set the story up. What, what do we have? We have a city. The city is Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea was a wild port city that had been rebuilt for Caesar and in his honor, and they had put up statues of that. It was a Roman-dominated territory, uh, and uh, they obviously were worshiping multiple gods in that area. It was raucous. Uh, there was a lot of promiscuous behavior that was happening in Caesarea. To Jewish people, Caesarea was a place of compromise. It's like saying, uh, hey, it's Friday. I bet God's moving on the Vegas Strip. Let's go and see what he's up to. Hey, it's Friday. I bet God's at work in the red light district. Let, let's go and see what he's up to. To Jewish people, this was not where you went for a meeting with God. It's where you went for a meeting with the devil. It was 30 miles from where Peter was at the time. He was staying with a tanner named Simon in Joppa. That's an important detail that we'll circle back to in just a minute. In this place, this city, there's a guy there named Cornelius who uh, is a part of what's known as an Italian cohort, which likely indicates that he was Italian ethnically from Rome and had 600 men in his command in this outpost city of Caesarea that were under his authority and leadership, tasked with keeping that city paying taxes to the emperor and to Caesar in Rome so that they could keep the big armies fed and he could keep his empire growing. We're told, however, at some point in time in his stay in that city, he had become a God-fearing man. He had changed. He, he is by nature what I would consider a seeker that is primed for transformation, a seeker that God's been working on and bringing to himself. There's several things that we hear about him in verse 2 and verse 3. Number, number one, we hear that he actively was seeking after God. Verse 2 says that he was devout. That means he was consistent. Uh, many of us are inconsistent 
pursuers of God. He was a consistent pursuer of God. He just didn't know who God was. Uh, verse 3 actually tells us that he was praying at 3 o'clock, which was the time of afternoon prayer at the synagogue. So he was actually doing the things that many Jewish people probably weren't in and of themselves doing. So he's praying. He's consistent. Uh, consider this idea under this, under this statement. Cornelius does not know Jesus, but he is likely more committed to Judaism than most of the Jews in the village were. Think about how many people... We, we call it non-practicing inner your denomination. I'm Christian, I just don't go to church. I'm, I'm Christian, I just, I just don't go to Bible study. I'm Christian, I just haven't read my Bible in a decade. I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, but I don't really pray. I'm Christian. We, we do this a lot. We, we like to claim the title of it because we want the insurance to know that there's not a need for transformation or intervention from God in our life. But in reality, it should be a sobering reminder that we are at best non-active pursuers of God. And at worst, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're children of God that are going to be separated on the last day away from God with a group known as the goats or the tares. And we're going to hear from him, though you showed up at Christmas and Easter and read your Bible once or twice and went on a mission trip once uh, in my name, I don't even know who you are. So, so what we know of Cornelius is he's, he's devout. He, he's sincere about wanting to know God. He just sincerely doesn't know who God is. There's a big difference between that and what a lot of us who have professed to be atheists are. A lot of us who profess to be atheists are basically in a prove-it attitude. Uh, we're, we're sitting back saying, well, if God's so real, let the thunder clap now. Uh, if God's so real, you know, and, and we're waiting on God to wow us into some side of belief instead of expecting through pursuing God and, and actually taking the claims of Scripture seriously and actually investigating like Lee Strobel did as an atheist in Europe. Uh, seriously, instead, instead it's like, well, if God's real, he'll show up. And, and like prove it. That's passive. That's not active. Cornelius is active. He, he doesn't know God, but he wants to know. He doesn't know the way and the truth, but he wants to know. And, and there's a big difference between the two. If you're not a believer in the house, are you passive? Well, it can't be true because of those Christians. I don't care if God's real, he'll show up and show. Is that your attitude? Are you actively going, no, no, in spite of them, in spite of the, the, the people that misrepresent God, if this is true, I need to know it. In spite, in spite of how they hurt me, in spite of what that church did over there, in spite of what my mama did with religion, I need to know, is Jesus really the Savior? I, I've got to figure it out for myself. So there, there are a lot of people who are running around thinking they're on their high horse because you get applause right now for deconstructing everything in your life that has been handed down and given to you. Oh, you're so brave. Oh, how heroic. And in actuality, what a lot of us are doing is we're just basically throwing everything away and replacing it with nothing. And then we wonder why we're so depressed. We wonder why we're so, so like downtrodden and heavy laden and burdened. We, we wonder why we're constantly walking around with our head in the mud, why we're constantly trying to find things that we can buy or achievements that we can uh, hang or platitudes that we can put on a shelf that'll somehow make us whole within our spirit and what it comes down to is we are passively dismissing God and we've not taken God serious enough to actively seek him I believe you were made in God's image I believe that every moment of your life was meant to be an act of worship filled with his presence in relationship with him for him and to him I, I, I believe that the Bible is clear that as an image bearer of God, we need to be restored because of our first father's sin in Adam. Uh, that, that's why you need 
Jesus much more than your posture this morning is letting on. A lot of you are sitting here acting as if Jesus is an option and you've yet to come to the realization that he is the only option. And if that there's anyone that can save and deliver, it's Jesus because no one else can come from the top of God's righteous mountain down to find unrighteous people like you and me. No other religion has ever talked about a God who came from righteousness down to earth to live amongst the unrighteous. Instead, man's made version of religion is you find a righteousness that can ascend you up his hill so that on that day you can stand before a righteous God. But the truth is none are righteous. None can stand before God on that day. Therefore, the good news of what we hold is that Jesus came for you as your substitute and in your place. He Cornelius actively sought God. Number one. Number two, he feared God. Uh, verse two tells us that he was a God-fearing man. He was a God-fearing man. Look back at the text with me. He was devout, God-fearing man. Now, later in the text, when the angel appears to him, it uses a word. Verse four, it says, when the angel came and stared at him, he, uh, Cornelius stared at him in what? Terror. All right, so we got two words here that are very different, okay? God-fearing does not mean like I'm scared and like, like all right, my, my hobby, my favorite thing to do at home is when I know Morgan's coming in the garage door, uh, and all the kids do it now, it's something they've been discipled into, we all hide, and we wait, and we don't even breathe, so that when my wife comes through the door, we can give her terror. We literally are terrorists in her house. Um, it's a favorite hobby. Uh, don't judge me. It's not sin most of the time. Um, what happens after sometimes is sinful, but that's here nor there. Um, <laughs> reverent fear is what's being talked about in verse 2. Uh, reverent fear is whenever you get right-sized in view of God. Many of you today are wrong-sized in your mind. You think you're, you're really big. You think... You're really great. You think it's your world and we're just living in it. And I know that you don't want to admit that in church because you know you're wrong in church. Like the answer in church is you're wrong. Like, that, that, like most of us have been trained that way. What's the answer? Jesus and I'm wrong. Okay, now we can move on. Like, anybody ever been to that church? Every time the Sunday school teacher asked, asked a question, it was either Jesus or we're wrong. Like, like that's the answer to the question. Uh, reverential fear is recognizing the greatness of God even in the absence of a relationship with God. It, it's that moment where you recognize, man, God is greater and holier and mightier and more powerful than I've ever given him credit for. And I am smaller and, and less powerful and less great than I ever imagined. It's John 3, where John says, he must become greater and I must become less. It, it's, it's that moment when you're taking in the scope of God's creation, which the scriptures teach that he spoke into nothing and out of nothing created everything that can be seen and known, that he carries the dust of the earth in the baskets, that he weighs the mountains on the scales, that he set the stars. I love this in Job, with the flick of his pinky. Okay, we have a God that that is right-sized. That's who he is. He does this, and billions of stars go, ha! Have you ever had a moment in view of some piece of that creation where you thought, wow, you are God, I am not. One of my favorite places to right-size myself is Pretty Place. It's never done it. You've got to do it one time. You'll puke at the top of the mountain, but then it's, it's like, oh, but don't you feel better? It's, it's great. You can see like all of TR and Pickens and 
you see rednecks doing redneck things down there, it's, it's an experience. Uh, that was a joke. Obviously, you are in tune and pushing in with me hard. I, I stood my bachelor party. We went and did Half Dome, uh, which is in California. It's a free climb up the side of this Half Dome, and you standing on top of it, feel like you can see the entire world. And I never will forget standing on top of it, and just your view of God changes. Uh, maybe it's on a, a mission trip. I have friends that have gone to northern India, where you get persecuted if you're a follower of Jesus. They had to sneak in and, and do crazy things to get in to do ministry work there, and it's in that kind of context where it's very wild and very foreign and unfriendly to the gospel message that I've seen many a believer's view of God go, man, he's so much bigger than I anticipated him to be. Cornelius, okay, he's devout. He's actively seeking God, though he doesn't know him. Uh, number, number two, uh, he is a man who reverentially fears God. It's not terror, but it's reverence. For some of you, the problem you have is you revere yourself, your, your credit, your plans, your future, more than you revere a holy and righteous God who you'll stand before and give an account for your life. And if you don't have Jesus, that's not going to go well for you. I love you enough to tell you that. Don't come here to get uh, flattered or your ears tickled. Come here to hear the word of God. Number three, he was generous. He was generous. What does that mean? Uh, the text tells us that he gave generously to the poor that were around him. Uh, being an ungenerous Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. Uh, money has a magnetic pull to either be your master or for you to be its master. You either tell your money where to go or your money will eventually, by debt, tell you where you can and can't go. The reason many of you are followers of Jesus but you live very greedy lives is because you have not learned to prioritize God above yourself. And because you were the God, you've sacrificed your debt and all of your credit and all of your margin into that idol that now has stacked up 17 to 23% a month interest on your neck. And it's choking you out and now you're crying out for a payout or a bribe out from a group of people that can stand in and forgive debt that you put yourself in. All because you were your master and you were your God and you decided to worship yourself with your money. You see, money is a means of worship to something. Right now in our church, we are about to take on a massive faith step. We're going to move next door on ten and a half acres. Here's the problem. As we've done initial surveys of the church, about 26% of the people that show up to this church actually give. Anything financially. About 40 or 50% of the church don't know the names. I don't know who gives big or who doesn't give. It's a great thing for me to be blind because I want to be a good pastor and a good shepherd to anyone in here. And it's not on the basis of financial giving that anyone gets better or less better care. But, but let me be clear. There are some of you that are going to spend more money on your kids' hobbies than you are going to actually invest in God's kingdom. And that should be problematic because you're demonstrating to your kids that they're an object to be worshipped above a God that's to be worshipped. My son asked the other week why he couldn't do another baseball tournament. I said because mom and dad financially live a lifestyle that puts God first and we do not have the finances to pay for you to go on an extravagant trip as a nine-year-old to play baseball in Texas because we're going to honor God with the first fruits of our money. That's why, son. Money is a means to worship something. My question is, what are you worshiping with your money? Cornelius doesn't know God, but he lives a generous life. He is being blessed by God to have a job. And as a result of that, he is being a blessing to others. I think there's something in the text about the people of God, that he would bless them so they could be a blessing. Yet many in the city probably had their fists tightly closed around their resources because they didn't have enough to be generous. By the way, generosity is not something that happens to you when you get rich. Generosity is a characteristic of a person regardless of how much is in their bank account. 
So don't come to God talking about you'll give when you aren't giving whenever you get rich. All you'll do is idolize more. I'll move on. Number four, uh, he consistently prayed. He consistently prayed. We see that in the three o'clock hour, which was the time of prayer, he's out praying. And this was a consistent habit that he likely kept in his life. The word, though, for the type of praying he was doing is not ritualistic. Ritualistic prayer in America is, um, now I lay me. That's a ritual, right? You don't really think about it. You just you pray it because you were taught it, right? Good God, good food, good, or what is it? Good grub, good, yeah, thank you. Say it out loud. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's not real gratitude. You just throw it out there. It's a, a ritualistic prayer. It doesn't have meaning. Um, the word that's used for the praying that Cornelius is doing is one who is of a beggar. It's begging. It should trigger in our minds the story that Jesus told about the uh, rich man uh, and the sinful man who was in the synagogue. The rich man stood in the back with his arms crossed and his posture was, thank God I'm not like him. But, but on the altar, there was a man who was praying, and his praying, as he beat his chest, was, God, save a simple man like me. Have you ever been in a season where you noticed the difference? Like, you, you were so guilt-ridden, so, so weighed down, so unsure, so overwhelmed, that, that, that literally it was like you were being driven to your knees, and, and your prayer didn't have time to be pretty. Your prayer didn't have time to be doctored up with King James type language or whatever it is that makes you think that God wants to hear from you. It was just, God, now, now, God, now, now, Lord, I, I need you now. Like, God, I need help. help. I mean, it sounded more like David in a manic psalm after he's talked about the power and sufficiency of God. And then you turn the page like, where are you? That's Cornelius. He doesn't care about saving face. He's more worried about the fact that there's a God that's holy and righteous that he doesn't know. And if God doesn't intervene, he'll never know him. <laughs> See, a lot of what you pray is just a ritual. You don't mean it. I mean, you, you can make anything that's good that way. It's not that we shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer, but think about how many of you mindlessly say it. Is your life really about God's kingdom coming and his will being done? I mean, how many of you are really content with daily bread? I'm, I'm waiting for response in the house. How many of you are really content with daily bread? you got enough to do what God's called you to do today, but you're worried about Monday and Tuesday and next week. And it, Are you going to be obedient with daily bread? I mean, like, like, stop praying it if you don't mean it. Like, like I'm serious. It'd be better for you not to sit there and, like, say stuff that you don't mean than to sit there and, give us this day our daily bread, and I'm going to sit here and worry and be greedy about what I do have, and I'm not going to honor you because I don't have enough. Come on. Cornelius, this is what I want you to see about this. Cornelius, by the world standard, is a really good person. But he is not a righteous person. I'm going to say that one more time. Cornelius, by the world standard, is religiously is, is religious, devoted, generous, respected, and sincere. But he is separated from God. And my point I'm trying to make to you is we cannot confuse earnestness with righteousness. There are a lot of earnest people in this world. They're trustworthy. They're good people. You want to do business with them. You want to hang around them. You want them to be your kid's coach. They're good people. But there's a big difference between being a good person and a godly person. 
To be a godly person, it, it doesn't mean that you've got a group of ritualistic rules that you adhere to. It, it means that the one who fulfilled the law lives in you. And, and if he doesn't give you the righteousness you possess, then there's no righteousness that will be able to stand before him, which means there's no righteousness within you at all. You see, what, what, we, what we have is this theological understanding that at the cross, Jesus, the righteous, took the place of humanity, the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians says, he made him who was righteous, who knew no sin, which means he was blameless, to become sin, unrighteous, on our behalf, that we might become, what? The righteousness of Christ. And for a lot of us, what we have, in especially the southeast of the United States, is a man-made earnestness, or let's just call it what it really is, a fakeness that's not a righteousness derived with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us by the cross and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. And instead what we've got is some ritualistic people that check some boxes and do some work and do some things, and they're earnest. You may be a great person, but you don't know God, and that's the problem. That's why it doesn't work. That's why you're not satisfied. Rule-keeping and platitudes and achievements will not make you more or less lovable before God. And until you receive the God of grace who demonstrated his love for you, and that while you were still a sinner, he died for you, you will never know of the righteousness that is given to you, not because you earned it, but because he decided to give it in spite of you. Mm. Half of you are clapping, the other half are going, what happened? What, what happened? Okay. So 32-mile journey is embarked upon by a soldier and some servants of Cornelius. 30, 32 miles. It's a day and a half. They make it in 12 hours. Because by noon the next day, they're at the door knocking. Now here's where Peter comes into play. Because Peter uh, is a godly man, but very imperfect. And if God doesn't prepare Peter, he's going to miss out on an incredible opportunity for ministry. So Peter at noon is up on the roof of a tanner. <laughs> I'm really going to get to that. And he's praying, and he becomes hungry. They're preparing food, but the food's taking too long. And all of a sudden, God appears to him in a dream, and on it, there's a sheet with all sorts of foods that are no-nos if you're Jewish. Now, why does this matter? Many of us, many of us want to evangelize where we shout out the gospel, everyone cleans their life up, they get changed, and then they come in clean and changed and transformed and like us before we have long-term fellowship with them. Discipleship requires a table. It, it, it requires m me and Todd getting in places outside of crowds where we can get honest enough and real enough so that we can pray hard enough for each other as we are being made into the image of Christ. And no Jew will go to the table with a Gentile at this point in history. So how can there be any discipleship how can there be any fellowship? How can we see uh, transformation take place if Peter is unwilling to go to a table because of what's on it? Peter, though being powerfully used by God, has a prejudice that's keeping him from active ministry to the people that God is at work in. 
So before they ever knock on the door, he sees this dream. Now what's interesting, if you read the text, is it says that uh, God appeared to him and communicated it to him how many times? Anybody read it recently with me? Why does that matter? Let's go back in history really quick. Peter denied Jesus how many times? How many times did Jesus ask him if he loved him? Okay, so it would make sense if you're trying to get Peter to step into a wild area of ministry that he's not willing to step into, that you would hardly have to say it to him about. There's no unimportant detail. Now, here's why I'm saying Peter is prejudiced, okay? And if you want to know, here's, I wrote this down. Sometimes you study all week at Fripp Island, and the Lord gives you the sermon literally in between services because you preach it, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off, and you're like, I'm so dumb. Here's, here's how this applies to the Christian in the room. Let me be very clear. For a lot of you, your prejudice is keeping you from ministry in the wild. Let me explain. Peter was willing to go to a person who was ethnically Jewish but already ceremonially unclean. If you were a tanner, you were not allowed to live in the city with the rest of the Jews. You would touch dead animals, which made you unclean. So there was a Jewish rule that meant that you had to live about, uh, let me find it. I wrote it in my notes somewhere. You had to live 82 and a half feet outside of the town line. Why? Because that's what the law said. I don't know. 82 and a half feet. If you were a Jewish woman betrothed to a man who was found out and you found out that he was a tanner on the side, you had the right to break off the engagement. Women had no real rights to break off engagements, but if they were a tanner, bad people, don't hang out with them. So for Peter, think about this. He's willing to minister in the house of a tanner who's unclean, but he's not willing to go to the house of a Gentile who's also unclean. He's willing to overlook the law that has been fulfilled in Jesus for the tanner, but he's not willing to overlook it for the Gentile. Who in your life do you maximize their flaws and minimize the good things that are going on within them? And who are the people in your life that you, in prejudice, minimize their flaws, and maximize their goodness. It's like talking to a mom on a travel baseball team. Her son's headed straight to the majors. He only hits dingers. He's never made an error. He throws harder. He's always young. There's so many parents lying about it. He's only like eight and three quarters. As if eight and three quarters is going to make the kid more impressive than if he's just eight, almost nine. But, you know, we're always trying to, like, sway the, the perception towards the people that we favor over the people that we have a prejudice towards. And so God's got to confront the prejudice in Peter because if he doesn't confront the prejudice in Peter, he'll never make it to the table with Cornelius. And if he doesn't make it to the table with Cornelius, then the people in the house of Cornelius will never hear the gospel. And though they are earnest, they are not righteous, and they need to become righteous because there's a day coming where they're going to stand before a righteous and holy God, and they need someone to stand in their midst and tell them the good news that there is a Savior that has come that has made a way where there was no way. But Peter's got to get over the prejudice. It's like this, uh, the, the Gentile Jewish thing, because a lot of us don't understand. It's, it's like, all right, it's like the majority of you in here that think or would say, I'm Republican. It's like saying, okay, now go and, and spend significant amounts of time around the table with the Democrat and talk about the gospel. It's that kind of prejudice, because I've met many people in church that are Republican, and they've made that as a distinctive marker as to whether or not someone's reachable, because if you're a Democrat, you're a demon, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And I'm like, dear God. How have, how have you gotten so far off that you've forgotten our God who raises dead things to life, who, st who calls into tombs and brings the dead things alive? I, I, anyway, here's my point. I've, I've got to wrap it up. I, I, 
there's a prejudice that has to be addressed, and, and that's addressed before the do- knocking of the door comes. Secondly, there's a geography that's got to be addressed. Uh, for Peter, <laughs> he had probably gone as far as he was going to go, apart from the Holy Spirit's intervention in his life. He was in the northern part of familiar territory. Caesarea was wild. You don't go there with the gospel. If you do, you go quickly and you put your head down. You, you don't go there. And here, here's my point. A lot of you think that in order for you to carry the gospel to the nations, you've got to go to there, the Middle East, South America, Africa, China. Here's the problem. There are a lot of places locally that are completely wild when it comes to familiarity with the gospel. Your neighborhood is wild. And it's your job to carry the gospel into that wild. Your work is more than likely wild. And it's your job to carry the gospel into the wild. You got to understand, it's not like some of us go internationally as sent people and some of us stay locally as comfortable people. You were not meant to be comfortable. You were meant to go into the wild with the gospel. That's the point. Your geography can keep you from a great moment of God's ministry. And then finally, a small view of God, which is what Peter still has after seeing everything, can keep you from experiencing God's work in your life. For some of you, it's prejudice. For some of you, it's a geography. I don't expect God to work there. For some of you, it's a small view of God, and they're keeping you from ministry opportunities to experience God's work in the wild. Look at what happens. After they walk all the way through the next day, they show up to the house. Now, here's what I love about Cornelius. He doesn't know how to behave like a a New Testament Christian yet. So, They arrived, verse 24, at Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting on them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. They didn't worship God. He worshipped Peter. It's awkward. Right? Peter's like, wrong, wrong, ha, ha, get up, I'm just a man. I'm human. This is a warning. A lot of us are burnt, and we're mad, and we're over church, and the reason we are It's because we worshiped, when God moved, we worshiped the man instead of God at work in the man. And and, and if there's anything we're learning from Peter, it's that God uses really broken people to do powerful things that are still really broken. I mean, let me be clear. This isn't like a transformational thing that's going to end Peter's process of sanctification. Instead, later, Saul... The adversary, who's now become the advocate, is going to have to come up to Peter in the book of Galatians and confront him because he's not walking in line with the gospel. He's not arrived. He's a mess. And God's like raising dead people to life through the mess. So you can look at that and go, wow, praise Peter. Or you can look at it and go, wow, praise God. Because if he can use people like that, Maybe someone like me can be used by God for something great that I cannot perceive to be a possibility with my life. I mean, good God, people. Stop worshiping man and start worshiping the work of God in man. One of the most encouraging things you can do for me as your pastor is not to revere me as being like on some spiritual playing field that's different than you, but allow me to repent in front of you. Allow me to be broken around you. And when you see Christ at work in me, don't speak. Do not speak how great I am. Speak to how you have seen Christ being great in me. That, that, that is Christian brotherly encouragement. That builds up. Oh, if you can't clap and praise God, I don't know what we're doing. I'm going to have to keep preaching. I, we haven't made it. Somebody you're like, really want lunch? 
Peter goes full on Jonah and Nineveh. Look at what he says. Uh, Peter told them, you know it's against our laws, verse 28, for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. Really, that's your, that's your opening line. I mean, most of the time, if you're somewhere you're not, you don't want to be, you lie. Okay, let's just be honest. In the South, you didn't want to go to, you're arguing in the car about going to church or going to that house or going to that thing. You're mad about it. You walk, how you doing? You flip the switch. You're happy. It's fake. But at least you're like, Peter's like, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't really want to be here. I mean, you're Gentiles. I don't associate with Gentiles or hang out with your kind. This is going to go really well. Jonah walks into Nineveh. He's basically like, look, five days, turn to burn. See ya. Walks out of town. It's so good to know, and this is free you, that God is not dependent upon the eloquence of your delivery in order for him to make an impact in where he has sent you. It is not the eloquence of your delivery that's going to make an impact of where he has sent you. It is obedience to his call that will lead to impact through his work and power. Peter opens with that line. He then hears... Cornelius' plea that four days ago an angel appeared, appeared, appeared to him in a vision while he was praying. So Peter then gives him the gospel, goes through and recounts the entirety of the gospel in chapter 10. Um, and then he says this. Um, I love this. Verse 43. He, Jesus, is the one all the prophets that he had been reading about, Cornelius, as he was actively seeking God, all the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Before he can get to just as I am, before the keyboard player's playing the pastor off and tell him to wrap it up, Peter, Peter's still in the middle of the sermon, and right in the middle of it, the entire house got filled with the Holy Spirit. The Jewish believers go, didn't know God could do that. <laughs> Next thing you know, Peter goes, I guess we're going to have to baptize him now, which means we've got to welcome him into our fellowship and to our tables, which... 32 hours ago didn't seem like a possibility and now seems like the only thing that would be God honoring here's what gets me about this story the thing that amazes me about what God does I, I, when you have a group of people that God has stirred their affection to know him and want him it gets outside of the controls of the, the service, outside of the controls of a work of God, when the Holy Spirit shows up it gets wild. And I, I'm not talking like, like late night Christian TV wild. I, I, I'm talking like it gets wild. I never forget uh, the fourth week of camp, 2007. The majority of kids that came to, uh, I was a camp pastor for Centrifuge in Northern California, which is Christian camp all over the country, six, seven hundred kids a week coming in. And uh, usually it was church kids. They had a church background. They spoke the language. They knew Christianese. They had grown up in church. They had a grandma or a mom that drug them to church. Uh, That was the background. But we knew in week four there was a church group coming that had gotten wild. And they decided to go to their local, um, uh, who's the people that advocate for kids locally, government? Yeah, that, whatever it is. Yes, that. And they got all of the strike one and strike two kids which in Nevada, if you got strike three, even if you were underage, you had like a massively long sentence that would take you into your 30s and 40s. These are like last chance kids. Most of them have grown up in unstable homes, come from gang backgrounds. They're, I mean, their they're nighttime songs were guns being fired off in the distance, and people dying was just a normal daily thing. 
And so they come to camp, 75, 80 of those kids. That same week, uh, another church had brought a bunch of kids from the inner city of the Bay Area into it. And I'll never forget, there was this one kid. He was super difficult, super tough. We couldn't figure out if he was using drugs or not because he was spastic and had fits of anger and rage and, and already had a strike on his record. Uh, strike one or strike two, I, I don't remember how far down the line, but it was not good. And I was preaching the gospel as best I could. And in the middle of preaching it, not as eloquent as I wish it was going, this kid stands up and he just yells, why has no one told me this? He didn't know the rules. You're not supposed to interrupt the sermon. You wait until we give the invitation. Why has no one told me this? I'm trying to tell you this now. He's like, is this true? It's true. And he ran out the back screaming, Why? Youth leaders chased him, they end up talking to him, he ends up becoming a believer, he ends up becoming a camp counselor at the camp. It's an amazing story. Here, here, here's my point. I did nothing great to make that happen. I just was willing to go into wild places where if God didn't show up, nothing would happen. And for a lot of you, the problem in your life is that you're not wild enough. I know you've been wild in like Willie and Wayland's way, but I'm talking wild in the kingdom way. And, and, and here's what I'm advocating this week. Would you just go get in some Jesus trouble, please? Just, just go as the people of God, by the Spirit of God, and, and go into the wild and see what happens when you trust Him. See what happens when you begin to mention His name. See what happens when you begin to make a place that's not a place of prayer, a place of prayer as you seek for God to work in that place. There's nowhere you're going to go this week that Jesus hasn't gone before you and isn't already at work in. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What if you just got wild enough to say, hey, maybe it's time to labor and get in the field and expect a harvest and expect God to move. Maybe it's time to walk into work and expect more than a paycheck. Maybe it's time to walk into school and expect more than just a, a class and a period and, a, and an education. Maybe it's time for me to walk into a neighborhood and expect more than us to kind of fake wave at each other and bless people's heart. Maybe it's time for me to expect that God's kingdom is here. It's in me right here and right now. And God's wanting to work through me in a way that will bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in my house and in my job and in my relationships. And, and I, I just want to get wild enough. I just want a church one time to get crazy enough to not wait on the pastor to call for the ministry to happen, but for the church to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and do the ministry. I want, I'm telling you, I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor say this to you. Go get in trouble. Don't come back until you've gotten in some trouble. Go get in trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, you move. Any hurt, any answer.